0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collins. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin.
2: Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and my guest today is Jessica Leahy. Jessica is an educator, a speaker, and an author. She writes about parenting and education for the New York Times and the Atlantic, and she's a commentator on Vermont Public Radio. She has also appeared on the Today Show, Fox and Friends, HuffPost Live, and many other media outlets. Jessica earned her law degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a concentration in juvenile and education law. She lives in New Hampshire with her husband and her two sons. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. It is great to have you here. I've uh, enjoyed reading part of your book, uh, "The Gift of Failure: How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed." And you've got some great pointers to share with people, and you know, just an interesting story to set to, to tell. Let's start with how is it that you earned a law degree and then you became a teacher?
3: <laughs> I actually went to law school to practice juvenile law. I had been interning in the Durham County uh, Juvenile Court in Durham, in the uh, district of uh, Durham, North Carolina, and just really had fallen in love with that and was working with the assistant district attorney there. And then I was asked to teach a, uh, a class during the summer between my first and second year of law school, and. Came home that first day, um, all lit up, and my husband said, oh, my gosh, are you even going to finish law school? And I did, but I ended up teaching right out of law school.
2: Okay. Did you start teaching in North Carolina? or? Uh, no, I started teaching
3: actually in Salt Lake City. We moved around a bit. My husband was doing his uh, medical training, so we oh, okay. we jumped around the country a little bit.
2: Okay. So how long were you teaching before you became a mom? I actually was
3: pregnant during my very, very first teaching job and uh, started teaching middle school when he was going into middle school. So I taught high school for a long time and, and then middle school towards the end of things. And, and just really my heart and soul is with the middle school students. I really fell in love with that age.
2: That's wonderful. Middle school is a tough age for a lot of parents and a lot of teachers. And it's We're pretty lucky wonderful. that there are some There's, folks like you who really enjoy those kids. Yeah, well, people either love it or hate it.
3: I'm glad I'm on the side of loving it. So
2: okay. So, was there a moment in your teaching or in your raising your own children that really inspired you to write this book? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I'd had this sneaking
3: suspicion for a while that something was something weird was going on. That the kids were becoming increasingly afraid to fail and a, afraid to take any kind of risks at all, including writing rough drafts doing anything that was less than absolutely perfect. And um, at the same time, as I said, I, I was, uh, my son was going into middle school. My younger son was in elementary school. And, uh, you know, I, I had this moment where I was sitting there in my class and I realized that the very thing that I had been blaming my students' parents for, the overparenting, was actually happening in my own family as well. Um, my 9-year-old at the time just still couldn't tie his shoes. And at the time, I think I blamed that on Velcro and, you know, the fact that it's faster to get out the door if I just do it. But, you know, every time I did that for him, I was telling him that he wasn't capable of doing it himself. And I had to sort of, it was a bit of a smack in the face. I had to realize that if I was blaming my students' parents for overparenting, I had to blame myself as well.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: It's much easier to blame someone else for that. But, you know, and, and teachers and parents, you know, we tend to heap blame on each other quite a bit. But there was no getting around the fact that I was both. So, hmm
2: Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. <laughs> <coughs> Would you like to tell me a little bit more about helicopter parents? What were you seeing other parents doing? That well, you- the trick. The trick for me is um you know
3: as a as a journalist, I can't write about my own students and my own, and the and their parents. It's just not only would i it, it's just not ethical and you know it would make a lot of people very angry so i I looked into a, there was a study that came out of um Australia and they quoted a lot of teachers and guidance counselors about the effects of overparenting on kids over time and those quotes frankly could have been they could have come out of my mouth and in fact the someone at my school was really freaked out and thought i had just these were my quotes about my own students and their parents but they were from a study and so i quoted those and uh and that first article why parents need to let their children fail that ran in the atlantic um went viral very quickly and after that, I just started receiving hundreds of emails from coaches, teachers, pastors, parents, and uh, and I didn't need to rely on my stories anymore. I had lots and lots of other people's stories, and, uh, and a lot of teachers are seeing the same things that we were seeing, which is, you know, almost getting to the point where we felt like we needed to protect our students from the parents and not communicating with the parents because we were afraid of the wrath that would come down on the students and the stress that would come down on the students. And feeling like you need to protect your students from their parents is a very strange position to be in. Um, and I certainly didn't ever want to be in that position with my children and their teachers.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So overprotection. just tell me a little bit more about this, that parents, a lot of parents Um, reached a point where they didn't want to let their kids fail? They didn't want to take risks? I,
3: I think that the best way to look at it is through the research of Wendy Grolnick at Clark University. She looks at autonomy, supportive parenting, versus what she calls directive or controlling parenting. And the most uh, shocking and sort of the thing that really opened my eyes um, was a study she did with mother-infant pairs where she invited them to her lab and she uh, asked the mothers to be nearby while the child plays. And that's all she said. It was very general on purpose. And some of the mothers really told the children how to do the playing with the toy. You know, no, try this, try this color with this color, put this there, that kind of thing. And those parents were coded as um, directive for controlling. And other parents, other mothers would watch their kid play. If their kid got stuck, they could redirect, help them focus, you know, refocus on the task, but not actually interfere in the play itself. And those parents were termed um, autonomy supportive parents. Where it gets interesting is when those parents came back to the lab, she, she separated the mothers from the children, and she gave the children tasks to complete on their own. And the children of the Directive for Controlling Parents were unable to complete the tasks. They would get frustrated, they would cry, they would give up. Whereas the children of the autonomy-supportive parents um, were really able to, yes, they'd get frustrated, but they were able to redirect, they were able to refocus, and they were able to complete the task. And even Wendy Grolnick refers to the results in that um, study as as stunning to her because it was such such a clear divide between the two types of parents. Remind me, how old
2: were those kids?
3: They were one. Yeah, very, very young. Very good. But then you extrapolate that out. I mean, I know, what what kind of task do you give a one-year-old? But if you extrapolate that out and you think about, well, you know, if you're doing that, if you're being controlling or directive when a child is one and they can't complete a task, what happens when you've been sitting next to them while they do their homework throughout you know, high school and then they suddenly have to go off to college and, and do their homework on their own and manage their own time and manage the order in which they do things and all of those details that we tend to not give kids control of? Um, you're going to end up with a lot of ki- very
2: frustrated kids who don't know how to proceed on their own. Mm-hmm. So do you have an idea where this comes from? I mean, it's sort of, it sounds like there's there was a loss somewhere in our society. There was a loss of common sense parenting. Why <laughs> would parents be afraid of letting their kids fail? I think it's, it's a confluence of a bunch of different things.
3: Uh, sort of the, in the evolution of parenting, um, a couple of generations ago, parenting was really taken away from parents we were They were taught not to Think of it as something that you could do intuitively. You needed experts to tell you how to do it. You needed experts to tell you, you know, how much formula to feed at how many feedings at what intervals. And there was a medicalization really of parenting and the rise of the expert. And then, you know, a generation later, Dr. Spock comes on the scene and says, No, 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 trust yourselves. You know more than you think you do. And while that's a huge relief, it's also incredibly stressful. And as time goes by, we you know we get more parenting magazines and more parenting books, and all of these experts coming up and saying, do it this way, and another expert says, no, do it this way, and we have all these different camps, it can be really, really difficult to know if we're what we're doing is right for our kids, and there is no report card for us. There is no, you know, score sheet at the end of the day to know if we have been a good parent. So the best we can do is look at our children and say, are they successful? Are they happy? Are they whatever? Um, But we tend to look at things like, are they getting good grades at school? Are they, you know, on the varsity soccer team? Rather than, are they competent? Are they feeling like they can try new things without um, freaking out and just losing faith in themselves? I think we're tending to look at the, this feedback on whether or not we're a good parent and we're misplacing um, where, what to value. We're thinking more about their short-term happiness than, than their long-term um, well-being and happiness.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I'm inclined to agree with you there that it's, it's really important for parents to be focused on raising their children to become competent, independent mm-hmm. adults. But it's scary
3: in the moment. I mean, you you need to get somewhere. You need the dishwasher loaded quickly or you want it done in a particular way. And it's it's really hard to step back and say, wait a second, is my goal to get the dishes clean or is my goal to teach my kid to know how to get dishes clean? And, you know, there are going to be some missteps along the way, and the kid's going to, you know, pull the dishes out of the dishwasher with food stuck to it. But that's a lesson, too. Teach them, show them that if they don't soak the dishes ahead of time or get rid of the crusty food, then they're going to have to spend time after they unload the dishwasher to get that crusty food off. You know, that's all part of the learning process. It's, mm-hmm. You know, I, I always tell parents the best place to start is to start thinking long-term instead of short-term goals. Start thinking mm-hmm. about long-haul sort of, instead of parenting for the moment.
2: Okay. Um, some parents, when they think about long-term, get as far as college. And <laughs> they think, oh, my gosh, what? how my how well my child does in high school is hugely important because it will affect what college they can get into. Mm-hmm. So how my child does in middle school is hugely important because it affects how they'll do in high school. So how they do it in elementary school is hugely important. And mm-hmm. it, it goes back to preschool. Um, do you see a lot of that? Absolutely. I,
3: I mean, the place I always come back to, though, well, there are a couple of things. This, this anxiety and mania that's being fed, um, we're feeding it, and we're, and the media is feeding it to let it make us believe that it's going to be impossible for our kids to get into a great college. Um, and that it 's just not true. Um, it, it is getting more difficult to get into a very, very small group of very select colleges. It is not getting harder for our kids to get into a perfectly good college and The other problem is that we've we 've att- I saw a Twitter handle the other day that just drove me crazy, and it was um, uh, the end of average. Well, I hate to tell you this, but my statistician <laughs> husband is going to explain that that's not possible. We can't have an entire population of overachievers. It's just Wait, it's we can't just not... live
2: in Lake Wobegon, where all the children <laughs> are above average?
3: Well, and, and then when I get parents really freaking out about college, I, I, I just rely actually on um, my own experience, which is that. And t- in teaching kids and in talking to college professors that the value of being able to um, self-advocate and to find your way at a large university to get what you need from your professors and the people around you is much, much more important than where you go to school. Um, self-advocating is one of the best things we can teach our kids how to be able to do, and that requires a certain level of, of autonomy and competence and allows requires us to... So to put them out there and require that they have the conversation with teachers, they have the conversation with friends who are giving them the cold shoulder, they have the conversations that are difficult, Um, that skill of being able to advocate for yourself, I can't say enough how important that is in terms of long-term happiness, success, and competence.
2: That makes sense to me. I could easily believe that. I want to mention, too, that getting into a good college is not crucial to having a successful, happy life. You know, some people want to be awesome carpenters, and they don't need to go to college for that. And some people want to be artists, and they might not need to go to college for that. We're
3: actually living in a really interesting time right now. There was a fantastic series done by American Radio Works um, called Ready to Work, and it's... It's about the reemergence of vocational schools and how many people who are interested in their kids becoming engineers and things like that are saying, "Well, wait a second. I could either send my kid to a school that will teach them hypothetically how to be an engineer, or I could teach my send my kid to this vocational school, like Minuteman Tech is the one they happen to be talking about in this segment, um, and actually." Let them become an engineer, (laughs) Um, actually apply things. I was talking to a professor, um, a physics professor at one point who said, you know, I thought I was teaching my students well, and then I actually gave them a test at the end of the term on how physics applies to real life, and they couldn't answer the questions. They knew theoretically how all of these formulas worked, but they didn't understand what that meant in the real world um, but vocational ed and and um, you know places like that are doing some amazing stuff to really promote the the idea that we do need people in trades. We do need people who are able to do a hands on hands on things in this world, and that there's there's a lot of good stuff in that, and I wish we would not look at it as less than um, in terms of academics
2: yeah. I know that I'm very grateful that there are people who are excellent electricians and excellent plumbers and so what on. What would we do without them? <laughs> no, I'd be not be, talking to you and I'd be in the shade. dark. All right. We're going to take a break and I will be back. Oh, before we take a break, Jessica, do you have a website where people can yep. find more of what you offer
3: and what you teach? Yep. JessicaLahy.com has everything from my um, my book tour schedule to uh, what I do when I come and speak, to buy buttons for the books, and all kinds of other stuff, all the press kit stuff.
2: Excellent. Okay. Jessica Leahy and I will be back in a minute.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not
3: need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively
2: in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit
3: colinfamilymediationgroup.com. Colin has one L and no S.
2: No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's APFMNET.org. org.
1: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787.
3: Thank you for calling.
1: VoiceAmerica.com. Voice You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to show at com. Now, back to Family Matters.
2: I'm Virginia Collin, talking on Family Matters with Jessica Leahy, the author of The Gift of Failure. Jessica, in the first part of the show, we were talking about how this huge number of books about how to be a good parent came along. (laughs) It just came along. I think it started early in the 1900s and... And it just kept going, and it's still out there. Now you're another one of the experts giving people advice about how to be a parent. So tell me um how how did all these parenting books affect you?
3: You know there there's some there's some great stuff out there, especially now that we have some parenting books that cross over into the research on on how kids learn how kids really learn and what creates durable learning. The problem is, is that I was reading those books and, you know, sort of feeling like a what now sort of feeling where I would put the book down and I'd say, okay, well, now I feel really bad about myself and I'm not quite sure how to go about changing that. And this book really, my book, The Gift of Failure, was born out of wanting To change myself and so a lot of it comes out of sort of the research but really two-thirds of the book is here's how to back off around homework here's how to back off around sports here's how to back off around social life and school and grades and all this other stuff that you know the more I go around to schools and organizations and talk to parents the more I realize parents really want to know where to begin that it's really hard to change midstream Um, But it's also really, really important. And the place that all of that starts, I think, is being honest with ourselves about our parenting and then, and this is the scary part, being honest with our kids that we've not done exactly the right thing, that we've made a mistake, that we've had a failure, but we're going to use that in order to move forward and learn. Um, That's modeling. I mean, that's that's the heart of what parents do for kids is model how we want kids to behave. And if we behave well when we realize that we've done something wrong and pick up the pieces and and do it better next time. That right there, that's the lesson we're trying to teach kids um, all in our own behavior.
2: Yeah. Two of the things that I do like very much about your book are that you cite research. So you're not just Mm -hmm. giving us an opinion about what would be good for kids. You're giving us the evidence that you know, this is this is something that truly does matter, and the second thing is, as you say, you are very concrete about. You know, this is what you can do differently. Um, and, you know, you don't leave parents wondering. Okay, well, it would be nice to increase my child's autonomy. How the heck do I do that? <laughs>
3: you know? Right. It's a. It was a big struggle, mostly because I'm a big geek. I love the research. Um, you know, I read over 250 books in order to and articles and all that other stuff in order to you know, inform this book. And if it was up to me, you know, it would just be chock full of footnotes and research and all that stuff. But, you know, my wonderful editor just kept bringing it back to the practical and saying, you know, this is all well and good. um, But, you know, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? And so that that was a real, really fun line to walk for me. Um, I Mm -hmm. really enjoy doing the research. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's why I love the job I get to do. It's it's about learning something and conveying it to some to someone else so that they mm-hmm. can
2: use the information. Well, you did a good job with that. Thank so you. One of the themes early in the book is intrinsic motivation, and you had really good things to say about that. Would you share some of that with my listeners?
3: Sure. I mean, I'm I'm really indebted to a couple of people for that. You know, I read um Dan Pink's uh Drive, uh, which is about the research of Edward DC. And Edward DC wrote this fantastic book called Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Human Motivation. And what Edward DC learned through um researching that book and through writing that book is that external rewards, um whether that's uh bribes, whether that's money for grades, whether that's you know, any lollipops for, for being good while you get a haircut those things just don't work long term to help people get invested in tasks in the in activities um, It can work in the short term and there certainly are moments when a reward can be uh, can boost motivation but for the long term it undermines what's called intrinsic motivation motivation uh, to do something just for the thing itself um, just because you love it or just because you're exhilarated by the learning it's there's that Mihaly um flow aspect of, you know, you get into this flow state in your head where the thing you're doing, you're doing just for the love of the thing and just because it's, it's, it's engaging for you. And, you know, watch a kid play Legos. And, you know, you know that when they're really deep in that headspace and really going for it, the, for, the best thing you can do is leave them alone because the minute you impose your own rules or your own goals on their playing, you've ruined it. So if we let kids tap into a little more intrinsic motivation instead of dangling all these carrots and lollipops in front of them, um, we can get them more invested in learning. And there are three things kids need in order to get intrinsically motivated. And the very first one is autonomy, which is independence, which is control over the activity they're doing and a little more control over their lives. Um, And the second thing is competence. They need to feel competent in what they're doing. And that's different from confidence. Confidence is sort of an empty, an empty feeling of, oh, I could probably do this. Whereas competence is, oh, I've done this. I know I can do this. I've, I've done this before. I've done a thing like this before, and I can apply the skills. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is connection. And that's both an emotional connection to other people, knowing that we're supported and loved, but also a connection that knowing that the thing we're doing matters, that it matters to other people in the world, that it matters to something we're going to need later in our lives. So autonomy, competence, and connection. Those are the three key um, elements of intrinsic motivation.
2: Those are the other three themes that I wrote down when I started taking notes about (laughs) the book. Yeah. um, It's probably worth saying that intrinsic motivation is what human beings naturally have. If you don't get in the way, your baby, your toddler, your preschooler, your kindergarten child, they want to learn things. They want to try new things. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of good common sense parenting is just not getting in your child's way. You know, don't take over what they're doing.
3: You need to think of think of that thing that you just love to do for the thing itself, something and it tends to be something that's not too easy and not too hard, sort of in that sweet spot in the middle um, and think about that thing and that thing is you hardly ever get into that flow state and really don't ever get into that flow state when you're being required to do that thing for, by someone else. Think about mm-hmm. the difference between a book you've been assigned versus a book that you pick off the shelf at the bookstore. Um, I wrote an article recently about getting older kids back into reading when they start to fall away from reading a little bit. And I said, you know, the surest way to get my teen to say absolutely not to a book is to recommend it to him. So no, mm-hmm. I, instead, I, I, I suggested that people find out what the kid's interested in naturally and pick some nonfiction books about that topic and just sprinkle them in the room, whether it's library books or purchased books, and see if the kid can decide to pick up those books just out of their own interest. And then I think you can get them hooked again.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to tell a little story here because I think it's not only parents. It's sometimes some places teachers who are getting it wrong about being over directive and not encouraging the child's natural love of learning Uh, my opinion about kindergarten was that the primary purpose of kindergarten should be to teach kids to love going to school Mm -hmm. then one day I went to the kindergarten where my son was attending to observe a class with a teacher who I had been told was an exceptionally good kindergarten teacher and she told the whole class choose your Take your red crayon and color this balloon in the picture red. And all the kids were supposed to do that and it kind of made me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I I wanted I wished I had the funds to send my child to private school because this was not going to be an enjoyable experience for him. He was not going to look forward to coming to school where Right. People didn't let him discover things and create things. I remember going to kindergarten and shaking up cream until it turned into butter. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, well, that's
3: where that term, Wendy Grolnick's term, directive or controlling, comes in. There's, there's autonomy-supportive uh, teaching as well as autonomy-supportive parenting. Both things mm-hmm. are extremely valuable. And, and uh, yeah, we have to start thinking about letting kids have a little bit more choice about how they, how they choose to express the learning that they're getting in, mm-hmm. in school.
2: Is there a way to be a teacher who supports your students' autonomy in this era of pressure to do well on standardized tests?
3: Absolutely. It's a really hard balance to strike, but there are a lot of teachers out there having a ton of problem-based learning, as some some people call it, Um, giving kids... A direction and a goal and letting the kids sort of work on the problem themselves to get to the answer as opposed to you know the, what we're used to the teacher stands in front of the school and the class and lectures about something and then we test them two weeks later on whether or not they learned it. Instead of doing that why not give them the concepts and then let them apply those concepts to some project that allows them to express their knowledge of the projects? There's if you Google uh, project-based learning or problem-based learning, there's some incredible resources out there for that. It's, it's difficult to do simply because it turns expectations on its head, and, and we have the concept of the flipped classroom as well, which also sort of touches on that. Um, but a lot of teachers are doing it quite well. It, it, it's, it's emerging, and I'm, I'm hoping we see more of it. There's a fantastic documentary that's just coming out um, And the book is coming out next week that that, the documentary is born out of um, called Most Likely to Succeed by Tony Wagner and Ted Dentersmith. And it's all about these schools that are more innovative in teaching kids through um, problem and project-based learning.
2: That is great to know. I didn't know what the answer to that question would be. (laughs) Your answer is really reassuring to me. Oh, good. Okay. Okay, so you had this moment when you realized that I'm – jumping to a different place all of a sudden, Um, you realized that the way you were raising your kids was overprotective and you wanted to do things differently. How did you make the change? How does a parent who wants to be less directive and do better at promoting autonomy, how do you change the good
3: news, the parents who tend to be most nervous about making the change are the parents of older kids, where, you know, the kid's been, there's a chapter in the book about this kid, who, this mom who came to me nearly in tears because she had been doing everything for her kid, and he was 17, and she thought, you know, I'm out of time to do this. The nice thing about those older kids, though, is they're relatively rational human beings who can listen to you and, and sort of get a more logical picture of things. And I'm a big fan of honesty and, and modeling your own response to failure. And as I said before, I think if you present it as, you know what, I've been doing you a big disservice. Every time I've done stuff for you and taken responsibility away from you, I've conveyed to you that I don't trust you. And I do trust you. I've just not been giving you the opportunities to prove yourself. And that changes today. So here are my expectations about schoolwork, for example. My my expectation for homework is that it will get completed, it will get completed well, and it will get handed in to your teacher. And if you don't meet those expectations, here are the consequences, whatever your household consequences are. And I will follow, follow through with them. But in terms of the details of how you do these things, I'm going to let you have some more control over those details. So let's talk about what those details might look like. What does your perfect homework day look like for you? Or if we're talking about sports, you know, how do you think if you're going to be in charge of all of your sports gear, and that includes packing everything and washing everything and making sure everything gets there and home, how will that work for you? What's going to be your strategy? Because that's no longer my job, it's yours. So how are we going to make that happen? Um, and the other key thing is, if we're doing this, um, especially with older kids, it's going to be really important. Um, in definitely uh, because of my my take on parent-teacher relationships, to let the teacher know that we're making this change. Teachers like to know when any big change is going on at home. You know, whether it's divorce or moving or whatever. But this is a big change, and it's going to impact what the teacher sees in class from day to day. Could well, it very well will. Um, and so, if you let the teacher know that you're making this shift, and you say, look, my son is now in charge of uh, getting his homework in and getting his homework done, and I'm not going to be checking up on it anymore. So we may have a rough patch here for a while. Usually what happens is things get are great for, like, three or four days or a week during the honeymoon phase, and then things tend to go into the in down the toilet for about a week, and then they come back after that. <laughs> uh, but if you let the teacher know that this is happening and say, and I'm going to need you to hold my son accountable when he comes to school. I mean, a teacher who has a parent who says, who comes to them and says, I want to work with you and please hold my child accountable, I would probably give that parent a big wet kiss on the cheek because – you know, I hardly ever get that kind of reinforcement from a parent. Um, so getting on the same tape page with the, with the teacher right off the bat is going to be really important. Um, but I think it's about being honest with your kids, about modeling the correct response to messing up your own parenting, to screwing up, you know, how you've run, you know, things in your house and, uh, and letting them in on that process, letting them give you feedback about what they want that process to look like. Letting them it, own as much as possible of that process.
2: It sounds as if, um, if you are married or just living with the other parent of your child, it would be important for both parents to be mm-hmm. on the same page about making this shift. Is that true? Yeah,
3: and this is this has been really hard when I talk to um kids. Uh that one of the things I do a lot is I go to a school and I speak to the parents one evening and then the next day I speak to the kids and I, you know, I I'm really can cir- create complete that circle and help the kids understand how they need to pick up the slack when their parents let off so that they can create this wonderful positive feedback loop for their parents and the parents will continue to let off. Some kids get really emotional about that and say, you know, how do I do that when my parents fight so much or when they don't even talk to each other or you know this is going to be one of those times that it's going to be incredibly important for parents to be on the same page you know it's always important consistency wise for kids to feel like they know where the lines are with both parents and they are um... they're not unpredictable lines and that's a huge challenge for parents that are divorced or separated um... but again If you want your kid to be in a position where they can take more control of their lives and feel competent, it's just going to be absolutely necessary to have that conversation with your estranged or divorced uh, partner.
2: Okay. Thanks so much. We're going to go to our second break, and we'll be back in a minute.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast.
1: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state. With special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do it yourself divorce. The Guide to Low Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. News.
1: Voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 472 5787 voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's one 1-866- 866 Four seven two five seven eight eight. You may also send an email to Radio Show at Colin Family Now back to Family Matters.
2: I'm Virginia Colin, and Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, is my guest today on Family Matters. I'm going to ask Jessica to tell us a little more of what she learned in writing this book and in teaching her students and in raising her children. Um, Tell me about rewards and praise. Mm
3: -hmm. Um, Praise is, all of the stuff in the book about praise, really all the credit for that goes to Carol Dweck. She, her book mindset, or yeah, her book mindset is just a game changer for parents and teachers. And I, I repeat constantly that I think it is should be required reading for all parents and teachers. And the basic idea is that um, there are two kinds of people: there are people with a fixed mindset, and there are people with a growth mindset. People with a fixed mindset believe that they are a certain level of intelligence, and that's that; they're born with it. Um, And so, and growth mindset people are people that believe that the harder you work, the smarter you can become. And our sort of more Western philosophy tends to be a rather fixed Mindset. Um, we tend to tell our kids, "Oh, you're so smart. You're so bright. You're so talented. Oh, look, you hardly had to work at that at all. That's fantastic. You're a prodigy." And all of those labels are really dangerous. And and I submit they're even more dangerous than uh, labels for uh, learning challenges because what they do is they get our kids thinking, "Okay, well, my mom or my dad think I'm smart." the fastest way to screw that up is by taking any risks or challenges. So I certainly don't want to take like those extra challenge problems or the extra credit problems, and I certainly don't want to stretch myself because if I get a low grade, my mom is going to know that she was wrong, that I'm not smart. We have that imposter syndrome all the time. Um, Whereas kids with a fixed mindset, what's great about a fixed mindset is that if we focus our praise on effort, on process over product, if we say, you know, I'm so proud of you for working so hard, um, you know, that's, I'm so proud of you for sticking with that, even though, you know, you found that challenging, That those are the kids that will go on to take those challenge problems because they know that they're going to get praised and they're going to get rewarded and they're going to get smarter for how hard they work. And one of the things, you know, that comes up in the book is that, um, for example, in Korea, there are a lot of issues with the Korean educational system that I'm not a huge fan of, but one of the things I love about a place like South Korea is that they, uh, the, the concept of intelligence there is not just based on inherent talents. When someone refers to intelligence there, what they're really talking about is a combination of inherent talent and effort, that people get smarter the harder they work. And, uh, and I think it's going to be really important moving forward that we give kids that understanding that the harder they work, the more they stretch themselves, the smarter they become, that we instill a growth mindset in our children instead of a fixed mindset.
2: Okay, thank you for that. I wanna insert one little correction in a sentence back a couple of minutes ago. You said with a fixed mindset when what you meant was, was growth mindset. Oh no. So <laughs> listeners should pay attention to what you s- described about the details of, you know, this is this is the way to do it. Just uh praise kids, reward kids for making the effort, not for what they achieve. Right. And, and that and, fosters a you know, growth mindset. Yeah yeah that if you try hard, you can get better at things. You can get smarter you can get you can become more competent well,
3: it's the reason we give we tell older people to do crossword puzzles to stave off um, you know the the loss of uh, memory and the loss of cognitive ability it's the same thing as kids are growing um, if we If we challenge the brain, it will create new connections it'll create more durable learning. The, the harder we work it, and there are also there's this concept that has come up in the in recently a lot called um, desirable difficulties, and it turns out that if we if I were to hand two different people two pages, and one page has is complete with all the information they need, and the other piece of paper has um, letters missing or words missing, and the person has to work a little bit harder to understand comprehend the the text on that page the person who has to work a little bit harder is actually going to remember that information longer and and better. Um, They'll have better recall for a longer period of time about the information on that page. So while we don't want to say, okay, here, um, learn calculus and solve these problems, we do want to throw kids some curveballs and say, okay, I know you learned this in this context, but how about you try to learn it in this other context over here? Or give them a problem that they honestly don't know how to solve at all and let them think about the process they might go through in order to solve that problem and introduce some of these desirable difficulties into learning so that kids have to work a little bit harder to learn the information. And as a parent and as a teacher, actually, that can be challenging because I get a lot of criticism as a teacher when I you know, give a test and the information is in a new context that the kids hadn't gotten before, or I introduce a lesson and I say, I know you learned it this way over here, but now we're going to learn it this way over here. And the kids say, well, that's not fair. That's not how you taught it to us before. Um, But that's all good for them. That stretches them and makes them learn more durably.
2: Okay. I love that. Desirable difficulties. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) It's a fantastic book that came out uh, about 18 months ago from Harvard University Press called Make It Stick, and there are three authors. Roddy Roediger is the one that I know the best, but there are three there are three authors total. Um, and it's I think it's one of the most important books about education that's come out in the past couple of years.
2: Okay. Um, speaking of reward and praise, there are parts of your book where you talk about uh, how rewarding and praising children can actually be very controlling behaviors. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a way that what you think is going to help your kid is not going to help your kid at all. Could you explain that a little bit? Well,
3: could the word control we tend to think of in a very limited context, but control actually means a whole lot of things about how we monitor, how we surveil our children, how we um, try to get our little fingers on the details of how they do things and, and one of the things I've talked about a lot is um, the concept of the this is off of the praise topic a tiny bit but it's about the um, parent teacher or the, the, excuse me, the, the portals at school that parents can look in, into online and check on grades um, and you know parents are starting to think that that's their duty now to, to check in online and to monitor how kids are doing every single day at school and I challenged parents to not do that, to pretend like that thing does not even exist. And while it has some limited utility for things like, you know, maybe military families and families that are estranged, that kind of thing, um, for most parents there's no need for us to know every single day (laughs) what our children Mm -hmm. got on every single assignment. Um, Mm -hmm. I I, I would love to think that we're capable of having actual conversations with our children um, as opposed to checking in on them um, uh, online every single day.
2: Yes, having the, actual the conversations is, with
3: your children is delightful. <laughs> I know. Well, and there, I do offer a half measure for parents who can't let go of that ID and, and password when it comes in the mail. I actually handed mine back to my son and said, I will not be using this. Um, this is your job at school, and, and I expect that you're going to talk to me if, if something's going wrong. Um, and I let his teachers know that I was not using the portal so that they needed to get in touch with me if there's something dire I needed to know about. But the half measure I offer is, okay, take the ID and the password and have it, but tell your child, I'm going to check this on Friday. If there's anything you'd like to talk to me about between now and then, I'd much rather hear it from you than from a computer terminal. So give your kid the opportunity to be the one that shares that information with you instead of using this computer portal as a default to, um, you know, to feel like to feel like you have control over everything because you really don't. You really, mm-hmm. really don't. And letting go of some of that control is actually going to be better for our kids. It really is. It's yeah. going to let them feel like we trust them.
2: Yeah. It's one of the scariest things about parenting. You really can't control what's going to happen.
3: I know, but we really would love to live in this little fantasy world that, that where we believe we do, but we just don't. It's like when you say be careful when they go out the door. There's a little story in the book about... Um, A mother who said she always said, be careful when her son was going out and going to do stuff with his friends. And then she heard her husband say, have fun. And she realized, wait a second. Number one, saying be careful does not put some magic blanket and bubble wrap around him when he goes out the door. And it's not going to do anything. And what she's telling her son is, you know, to be anxious and to be wary and to not embrace the world and so she said that was the last time she said be careful as she went out the door as her son went out the door and she started saying have fun instead and it's a tiny little thing and maybe her son didn't even notice but it's a huge thing in terms of your attitude towards um, the world towards how brave our kids need to be when they go out in the world
2: yeah that's certainly true if you're too careful then you're gonna miss out on a lot of fun and a lot of opportunities that do involve taking some risks Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of unsupervised play. Mm-hmm. What would you, well, uh, you, you, you say a lot about that. Sorry. in yeah, Sorry. Starting, starting when they're babies or toddlers and certainly by the time they're preschoolers, you need to let your kids just play with the other kids. Why is that so important? There are a bunch of reasons. The big
3: ones are that um, unsupervised play really allows kids – um, to create their own self-directed goals. You know, we're going to build this fort, and here's how we're going to do it. Um, self-directed goals are one of the best things that, one of the big things kids need to be able to handle and, and work with in order to build up their executive function, their ability to manage time and create, goal, create um, steps towards a goal that they've created themselves as opposed to one that we've given to them. So that's one Number two, they need to learn and experience what it's like to be bored and learn what to do when they're bored, to, to use their imagination to get themselves out of these, you know, these moments when it's really easy to just turn on the television. Um, the other issue is, you know, physical fitness. Kids just need to move, and it's really important for the brain um, where there's a lot of research on movement and learning that uh, the brain is actually activated by moving. Uh, a professor I was speaking with recently, um, she was actually teaching a class, and she encouraged us all to get up on our feet and just shift our weight from one foot to the other because when we do that, we increase blood flow in the body, and, and it, we actually increase blood flow to the brain, and it allows us to learn more. Um, there's a whole aspect of tactile 3D learning that we get when we go outside and interact with the world, when we're, when we're playing um, at a playground, when we're playing with Legos, um, that we don't get when we're interacting with a screen or when we're being told by someone else step-by-step how to do something. Um, manipulating the world according to our own goals is really, really important. And finally, there's patience. Um, having the patience to sit with oneself when it's quiet and figure out what to do next, um, rather than having someone right there to redirect, having someone right there to say, oh, now do this, um, is incredibly important to kids. I wrote an article a while back about the – I've written two articles, one on daydreaming and one on patience, and the importance that both of those have on, um, on learning and creativity. They're really, really important moments um, when kids are out doing stuff by themselves or doing stuff with friends outside by themselves, out of earshot of parents that, that are invaluable to learning. And finally, um, there's a great book called Homesick and Happy uh, by Dr. Michael Thompson, and he, who's just a brilliant to me, he's such a mentor, he, um, he talks about in the introduction to Homesick and Happy, he asks parents at his talks to, to think about the biggest learning moment in their childhood and then to raise their hands if their parents were there for it. And very few of the people in the audience raise their hands. These big learning moments tend to be moments of independence away from the watchful eyes or the guidance or the, you know, the be carefuls of parents. They tend to be big growth moments that, that have to happen um, when we're out doing stuff according mm-hmm. to our own agenda. Mm-hmm.
2: And one more thing that's important about unsupervised play, which you do mention in your book, is that kids need to learn how to interact with other kids. They need to learn how to choose friends, how to have friends, how to get through the times when you disagree with each other, or there's a little power struggle for a few minutes. Absolutely. Things like that. We tend to to
3: snag them right out of that sandbox the minute a kid throws sand, but it's such a bad thing to do because the kid who threw the sand needs to see the face of the kid who's hurt because the sand got thrown in his face and the kid who's got the sand thrown in his face needs to be able to convey to the other kid that they didn't like that. You know, the kid that throws sand in the sandbox and never gets to see the response of the other kid is the kid who's going to grow up to be a bully probably. And, you know, when they get older, if they never, you know, see the follow through of, um, uh, of how other people feel when uh, when their actions impact them negatively. It's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when kids insult another kid on social media, they can't see the other kid's face. Um, and Louis C.K. has a great bit about this, that the reason young kids don't need, you know, cell phones is they need the face-to-face interaction with other people when we hurt people's feelings. It's, it's an invaluable part of becoming a human being and empathy
2: and perspective-taking. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's true is that um your bi- your ability to get along with your peers and to choose friends well is going to be really important because peers have a huge influence on how a child's life develops. You know, Absolutely. parents don't control everything. Those the kids your ki- that your child plays with are they really matter.
3: And, and it's you also shouldn't part choose of trying an identity.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we have about a minute left. Do you want to say a little bit about uh not not trying to choose your friends kids your kids friends for them? <laughs> sure. Yeah,
3: especially as kids move into adolescence and and friendships are more about trying on different identities than proximity, you know, not just the kid next door but the kid I seek out. Um one of the things you can help kids do to understand those relationships without sort of stepping in and manipulating them is to say, what is it you like about this kid? What is it that you that you find attractive about this person? Why are you spending so much time with this person if they make you feel bad? Or, if they, you know, what is it about this person that makes you feel happy? Um, talking about how friends make us feel um, rather than just trying to intervene and say, you know, oh this kid makes you sad, so therefore I'm not, I'm going to never allow you to see them again. That again is is uh, really negatively impacts kids because we need to let them deal with those social interactions. That's a really important part of dealing with difficult people later on in our lives.
2: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm happy to recommend your book to my listeners, The Gift of Failure, and people who want to learn more of what you have to offer, and the book has much more than we've been able to discuss in today's show. But people who want to learn even more can go to jessicalahey.com. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.